0: In previous years, uh, but there has been a tangible sweetness to gathering together these first few weeks, and I'm hopeful that the Lord would see fit for that to continue, that Sundays would really become uh, our favorite day of the week as we gather together. Uh, What a grace-filled gift to begin the year this way, so uh, thank you for your participation in that. Um, yeah, I, as we think about the privilege that we have of gathering, there sits at the center of our gatherings just this priority of hearing from God in and through the preaching of His Word. Uh, we believe that God, the God who is over all things, is also the God who desires to be known. Like he desires to make himself known and he desires to know us. And so that's why we give ourselves to the preaching of his word, gathering around this word that has been preserved by his kindness for thousands of years. And so we can read his word, and in reading his word, we can know him. Like, what a stunning thought. And as a church, we honor this thought by taking time each Sunday after singing and after praying to look into this word to better understand who he is and how we are to be shaped by who he is. Don't miss that. The goal isn't merely information transfer. The goal is that there would be life transformation as we sit under his word. We trust that as his word is rightly preached, his word accomplishes all of the purposes for which it has been sent out. And so, let's pray this morning that the Lord would be gracious to meet with us even as we gather around his word this morning. Our holy God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that the ministry of preaching at this church would not be a ministry that sought to find approval from men. That preaching wouldn't merely be done to win the esteem and the affections of man. No, having this heavenly calling to be faithful in proclaiming your word, we desire to see you glorified. And so even now, would you water the hearts of those who are going to hear your word. That this seed that is sown in weakness may be raised in power. And so may this sermon be a means of grace for each of us. Would you help us through it to experience the power of the good news of Jesus Christ? For that to happen, you have to do far more with this than what I can do. And so would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached? For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we began our new sermon series through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Corinthian church was planted during Paul's second missionary journey. I say planted. it, It started during Paul's second missionary journey. And he stayed there about a year and a half, working and laboring among this church in Corinth. About three years after he leaves Corinth to continue on his missionary journeys, he receives a letter from the church. And he also receives some personal reports from others who meet up with Paul. And he learns that this church, uh, they are a piece of work. uh, Not in the best sense of the word. And so while he's planting a church in Ephesus, he sits down to write the Corinthians a letter. 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul writes to the church. Uh, We don't have the first letter. We have the second letter, which is the first letter in our Bible. And if you're confused, then 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter, not the second letter that Paul writes to the church. Nevertheless, Paul has been in correspondence with this church. Their problems are numerous. Their problems are serious. But perhaps what could be lost on us if we're not careful is that the issues that they were facing really reflected the culture in which they were situated. Uh, the struggles that they were working through really reflected kind of the prevailing values of the culture around them in Corinth. As commentator David Garland says, most if not all the problems that Paul addresses were hatched from the influence of the city of Corinth. So for us to better understand their struggles, I do believe that it's helpful for us to consider their context. Corinth was an up-and-coming city in Paul's day. One commentator called Corinth the most dazzling and modern of all Greek cities. Corinth is situated on this narrow neck of land in Greece, with harbors on both sides. It's about uh, at 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 its um, kind of from coast to coast at the most narrow point, maybe four and a half miles. For more than a hundred years, this old town sat in ruin from a conquest of Rome. But Julius Caesar rebuilds the city and he populates it with retired military and freed slaves and immigrants. It really is this melting pot of occupations, melting pot of ethnicities, a melting pot of cultures, and with that melting pot comes all kinds of idolatry and immorality, It really was the prime location at just the right time for people to show up and seek to make a name for themselves. If you wanted to be somebody, go to Corinth because Corinth was obsessed with self-image and status. Corinth had a ton of money. And while it was this cultural context that that the church was formed, what becomes clear is that this church wasn't uh, wasn't merely a church that was in Corinth. It had become a church of Corinth. Gordon Fee, I think, helpfully puts it this way. The problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. I think remembering this will help us understand then why Paul think about 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 3 he says when i came to you i came with much fear and trembling this is what paul knew paul knew that the gospel message that he was committed to preaching literally was the exact opposite of the cultural values of corinth the humiliation of a crucified christ was an affront to those who cherished winning and success And so Paul knew that this would would have been a very, very far stretch, humanly speaking, for anyone in Corinth to believe his message. The message of the cross flowed completely upstream from the value system of Corinth that ran downstream. And I believe that this letter will serve us well. Covenant Life Church in 2024, because the cultural setting is so similar to our day. Like sometimes we open the Bible and we, we read and we say, okay, I've got to understand the context in order to at some point make the jump between what, what the, the original context was and what my context is today. And we look and we just say, man, that gap seems so big, not with the letter of 1 Corinthians. As one commentator noted, the descriptions would have been materialistic Highly egocentric, individualistic, divisive, and competitive. Like that sounds like Tampa. Is there idolatry in our city? Any false gods being worshipped here in Tampa Bay? Money, power, politics, position, status sexual expression sports success Uh, do you feel a pressure to work harder to get more position to make more money to get more status to uh, to accumulate more power and more influence and more pleasure and maybe from your seat you're not only observing that that marks the culture maybe you're beginning to see how those values of our culture are beginning to shape and seep into the church. Threatening to destroy the church's fellowship within and her witness to the world without. And so what is the solution? What is the solution for the prevailing values of our culture beginning to creep into and overrun the purity and the calling of the church. Well, I trust First Corinthians will help, help serve us by highlighting the only antidote to such problem, and that is the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of God seen clearly in Jesus Christ. Paul is going to repeatedly stress holiness, sacrificial love, and gospel unity as the aims of that seek to keep the culture afloat amidst this confused and ungodly culture. Uh, That aims to keep to see the church afloat amidst this confused and ungodly culture. And so with that backdrop, understanding a little bit about Corinth, we'll talk a little bit more each week, to where we begin to, to feel like perhaps we're even there with Paul. With that backdrop, we, pre, uh, we reach our passage, the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. And so I invite you to open your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One will be the larger number, the chapters, the smaller numbers, Verses will be verses, will be in verses 1 through 9, the beginning of 1 Corinthians. There's no shame in using your table of contents to find it. Anytime we find ourselves at the beginning of particularly a letter, we run the risk of either skipping over altogether or at least quickly skimming the opening verses. We can just see, okay, this is like ancient etiquette. This is what you're supposed to do when you write a letter. It's not even ancient, right? Think about most of your emails. You do some kind of... Hey, how you been? Hope Life is well. Why haven't you emailed me back? (laughs) But rest assured, this is not merely ancient etiquette. These words are divinely inspired and they bring us theological purpose and substance. And so here's the question. The question is if you had the opportunity to address a church that was being seduced by human wisdom, that had drifted from the centrality of the cross, that had divisions throughout, that tolerated sexual immorality among its members, that desecrated the Lord's Supper, that sued one another repeatedly, that misunderstood and misused the gifts of the Holy Spirit, of whom Paul would later say about that church, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, their gatherings did more harm than good. Like, what would you say? To that kind of church how would you address them and this is where the opening of 1 Corinthians may be a bit shocking to us I would have jumped straight into correction like straight into what in the world are you thinking And yet, Paul begins with praise. And what this reveals is that he has a perspective that many of us don't have. He's guided by divine perspective. C.J. Mahaney tells the story quite effectively. Imagine that you are you are on the receiving end of this letter from your daughter who has been away at college. Dear mom and dad, since I've left for college, I've been remiss in writing and I'm sorry for my thoughtlessness in not writing before now. I'll bring you up to date, but before I do, please sit down. Are you sitting down? It's pretty important that you sit down before you continue to read this letter. I'm getting along pretty well after the skull fracture and the concussion I got when I jumped out of my dormitory window to escape the fire shortly after I arrived. It's pretty well healed. I only get those sick headaches a couple of times a day, but fortunately that fire and my jump was witnessed by an attendant at a local gas station. He ran over and he took me in or he ran over and took me to the hospital, and he continued to visit me while while there. When I got out of the hospital, I had nowhere to live because of the burned-out condition of my room. He was kind enough to invite me to move into his basement bedroom apartment with him. It's sort of small, but it's very cute. He's a very fine young man, and we've fallen deeply in love, and we're planning on getting married. We haven't set the exact date, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, mom and dad, I'm pregnant. I knew how much you were looking forward to being grandparents. I knew you would give the baby the same tender care and devotion that you gave me when I was a child. In conclusion, now that I brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I didn't have a concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in a hospital. I am not pregnant, and there is no boyfriend in my life. However, I have I have failed history and science. <laughs> I wanted you to see those results in their proper perspective. <laughs> that is the power of proper perspective. It really makes a difference on what one sees. I believe that Paul responds the way that he does because he is overwhelmed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I believe that Paul responds this way because he's desirous to overwhelm them and us by extension of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This perspective dominates everything about his perception of the Corinthian church. Three realities that I believe overwhelm Paul, that he seeks to overwhelm the church, and I pray that this morning we would be overwhelmed about the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Number one, that God has called them and set them apart. That God has called them and set them apart. Listen again to verses one and two. This is the word of the Lord, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul begins this letter by identifying himself as an apostle and he identifies Sosthenes as a brother in the Lord. Everything about how Paul understands who he is is in relation to God. Don't miss that. Paul doesn't show up and Paul isn't operating from this perspective that he is who either he thinks he is or who others thinks he is. In fact, he says who I am has everything to do with who I am in relation to God. He's an apostle. He is a spokesman with divine authority. Apostle was a special call. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 1, in order to be an apostle, there are some some stipulations. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Paul has been uniquely called, coming sometime later, having an encounter with, On the road to Damascus. And so this is a special calling as we think about, okay, if I'm thinking about who I am in relation to God, maybe I'm an apostle. No, that special calling doesn't, it doesn't uh, extend to you and I today. But this is what Paul knows about his apostleship. He knows he got there. He knows he received that owing to one reason, to the will of God. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This was not something that Paul sought out. In fact, if you study the life of Paul, who was formerly Saul, he was antagonistic. He was seeking to harm and even kill, to stamp out Christians who were willing to spread this news about Jesus Christ. And so Paul seeks to establish his authority at the outset, but he's doing so not in a way he doesn't show up. This doesn't smell like this kind of braggadocious, oh, I am an apostle, therefore know your role. No, in fact, he's not drawing attention to himself at all. He's pointing away from himself to draw attention to the God who has made him what he could never become apart from God. It really is a liberating reality to be able to see yourself and to be able to describe yourself in relation to what God has called you to do. And so think about your station of life, your singleness, your marriage, your job. It's no accident that you are what you are, where you are, when you are. Like I wonder as you think about you, are you held captive to what other people say you are. Do you know the freedom that Paul would know to say, listen, this is who I am and I'm unashamed about it because God himself has made me this. Like Paul's self-understanding is so connected to his understanding of who God has made him and called him to be. John Piper's helpful here. He says, a tremendous stability comes into your life when you let God define who you are in relation to him. Rather than letting the world define who you are in relation to things, to groups, to your body, to your career, to your pleasures, to your power. To know where you've come from in relation to God and where you are heading in relation to God and where you stand now in relation to God will make you a free agent. You will not be jockeyed around on the basis of contemporary advertising. You won't be the slave of fads or fashions or trends. When the world attempts to leverage your decision by defining you in terms of your body, your car, your bank account, you will not crumble with insecurity and dissatisfaction and covetousness. You will be able to stand like an independent, free agent, knowing who you really are and what your really life means in relation to God. And so I wonder this morning, who are you? Like, how do you define that? And I wonder how closely tied is that to who you are before God. That question, who are you, is best answered by who you are in relation to God. And so Paul doesn't just begin this letter by saying, hey, this is who I am. He also identifies the recipients of this letter. And he identifies them in relation to God. It's not Paul's church. This is to the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's not any other man's church. It's God's church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified. When you see the word sanctified. To those who have been set apart in Christ Jesus. Saints. Those who are set apart by calling. Not just these, but also with all in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. They are called to be holy. They are called to be set apart. Set apart from what? Do you remember their culture? Do you remember the prevailing worldly values? Do you remember? Later, as we get into this letter, Paul will go through this list of just grievous sins and he will say, and such were some of you. They were not to look like everything else around them. They were to be a new people, a new community that has been pulled out of that culture. And here's the truth, that when you and I belong to Jesus, it changes who we are. It has to. And Paul is telling them here who they are. He begins this letter by saying, don't forget who you are, because the rest of the letter, he's going to remind them, now act like it. In these opening verses, Paul doesn't simply want to show the reader that they must be different or even how they must be different. He wants to remind the reader why they are different. They are different because they are in Christ Jesus. This is a letter full of warnings about serious concerns that Paul has. And yet at the very outset, he takes them back to the grace of God found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ. The past tense may throw us a bit. Because we often think of sanctification, the process of being set apart and becoming more and more Christ-like, we, we often think of that, rightly so, as present tense, as future tense. But Paul, will, in, in multiple places, in letters that he has written, he makes clear that there is a past tense sanctified that happens to all who belong to God in Christ Jesus. Think about in terms of righteousness. Those who are in Christ, they have been positioned in Christ so that what's true of Christ is true of us. And so this means that when Christ is seen as perfected by faith, when God sees us positionally, he sees us in the same way we are sanctified. When Christ was raised from the dead and declared by the Father that that is His righteous Son, exalted to the Father's right hand, we then who by faith have been united with Him, those benefits that that were declared by the Father of the Son are also declared by the Father on us. We're sanctified positionally in that we've been set apart as God's very own. So in that sense, we're not being sanctified. We have already been sanctified. This is why Paul can speak of those that are already sanctified. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul's very clear. There is no way that you can have that secure standing with God apart from Christ Jesus. And it's total allegiance to him. It's not Christ Jesus plus. It's not a little bit of Christ Jesus and. It's all of Christ Jesus and nothing else. And I love what he says they are saints by calling, saints by calling. He doesn't have in mind, like, the mere call of a parent who maybe hopes that their child is going to respond. Like, I'm asking you to do this. And it's kind of up to the child as to whether or not they're going to do it. No, it's this summoning and a changing that happens when the summoning happens. And God in mercy graciously overcomes our resistance to him. Uh, Just read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. You just see this this solid link of what God has done, and it's not broken until you get to glorification where it's not broken, but it's completed. Like this is a calling. And as he calls, it's a reminder that divine action preceded human action. This doesn't diminish human action or responsibility, but the accent at the beginning of this letter is over the sovereignty of God. Paul begins and this letter, uh, opens this letter by accenting divine initiative, the prior activity of God in their lives. I think that's why he doesn't begin with correction. He goes back and he remembers what it is that God has already done in these believers and for these believers, and to these believers. The Corinthians were acted upon by God's Spirit through the gospel. They were numbered among those who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I love how Spurgeon says this. He says, I ask any man to look back on his conversion and to explain how it came about. And I believe what you'll find is the same thing Paul is drawing out, that God summoned and graciously overcame even resistance to make us what we were not. And this is really the good news of the Christian faith. The good news of the Christian faith isn't merely that there's a God who sort of puts out a call like, hey, it's dinner. When you're ready, if you want to come, come. Kind of, and he's waiting. Are they going to come? Are they, they, is this going to happen? I mean, it, 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 that reminds me of just the wrong analogy of thinking that apart from God, we're kind of drowning in the lake. And we just we need we need the right raft to be thrown to us, the right call to be thrown to us, and then we we'll be able to kind of latch on, and then we can be okay. I just think that's the wrong analogy because the Bible makes clear that humanity in their sin are not kind of bobbing up and down, struggling to. To not drown. They are at the bottom of the lake. Dead. Dead. That's what makes this gospel and the good news of the Christian faith immensely stunning. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is not owing to your effort. It is owing to the gracious initiative of a merciful God. Who in the face of what you deserved because of your sin. His righteous hatred against sin, you're deserving of absorbing and and receiving that. And in light of what you deserved, and think about that that righteous hatred against sin, that's why hell is eternal. Not even hell can exhaust and bring the wrath of God to an end. In light of that, what we deserved... God mercifully sends forth His Son to live the life that we should have lived but we couldn't and to do what not even hell can do, to endure and absorb every bit of the wrath of God so that those who by faith, they can be pardoned from such wrath. They can avoid God's wrath having had the penalty to fall on Jesus the Christ. And we know this is true because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Friends, this is the good news of the Christian faith. Not that God kind of came along and called out a some people who were pretty good, but man, they had a couple of kind of character flaws they couldn't get over. No, the good news of the Christian faith is God has done something in bringing about life to dead souls. And if you're a Christian this morning, I pray that you would not get over that. I think that's why Paul begins here. As he's pleading with these Corinthians, it makes no sense that you would act this way in light of... What has been graciously done for you and given to you in and through the mercy of God through the work of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know everything that overwhelms Paul in this opening can also overwhelm you and can sweep you up into the sea of his love and mercy and forgiveness. Turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ alone. And if you have questions, talk to anyone about that. This is the most important thing. Who you say you are can only be rightly answered in relation to God. And so I pray that you would turn from sin and trust in him. Paul is aware of numerous deficiencies in this church, but he just begins to remind them of God's call upon their lives. He seems more aware of God's prior work than their present deficiencies. And I think it's just helpful for us, even as we seek to do life together as as a church, To just pause and to think. Think about your spouse. Think about your children. Think about members of this church. Think about the pastors of this church. Think about everyone in your life who's genuinely converted. Are you more aware when you think of them of the prior work of divine grace or the present deficiencies? I think Having the proper perspective can have a transforming effect on our souls. Brings us to reality number two. What what overwhelms Paul? That God has poured out his grace in Christ Jesus to them. We see this in verses four through seven. Just listen. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I'm thinking about how I would address this church, and I'm thinking it's this would be a really bad idea. To stand in front of a church that has so many problems and to praise them by saying, I can't stop thanking God for the evident grace that's in your life. Like how can Paul give thanks for them in light of all of their problems? He's able to do that because he believes and is aware that there has been grace that has been given in Christ Jesus. Paul says in everything, you were enriched in him. Like, I would not have celebrated their unusual giftedness. Again, Gordon Fee is helpful here. What is most remarkable is the apostle's ability to thank God for the very things in the church that because of abuse are causing him grief. One more time. What is most remarkable is Paul's ability to thank God for, For the very things in the church that because of their abuse of those things are causing him grief. Paul recognizes that the gifts present were genuine evidence of God's grace. Therefore, he could give thanks for them while spending time in addressing their attitudes towards those gifts of grace. Like later on, Paul's going to hold up this church as the seal of his apostleship. I'm just like, no... I'm holding up the Philippian church, Thessalonian church. I mean, just any other church. Not this one. And yet he discerned evidences of grace in a church that was in need of much correction. And I think if we, if we aren't training ourselves to identify evidences of grace, then when we begin to do life with one another in the church, we will be overrun with opportunities to pick up on deficiencies. And if we're not careful, we run the risk of being overly critical, all the while missing the clear evidences of grace that are there. I've just been praying, God, would you make... I mean, there are going to be so many things that come up in 2024. They're going to give us opportunity to be reminded of deficiencies in one another. And I just pray that before we would begin to major there, that we would be reminded of the grace that has been given, the work that has been done. Paul was aware that God was at work in their midst, and he celebrated God's grace at work among them. And so this is what you and I can believe, that if someone is a Christian, we can be certain that God is at work in their life. Do you believe that? Like he who began a good work, He is always faithful to complete it. And so I pray that this year we would just leave a wake of encouragement behind us as we interact with one another. And let me be clear, what I am not saying is that we as a church should never correct one another. No, in love we have to correct one another. But oh, I pray that we would not be a church that gets fixated on others' needs for correction all the time at the expense of any identifying evidences of grace. David Pryor, in his commentary, says we need to register this primary truth that Paul looks at this Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true of this church. He doesn't ignore anything that needs to be said But he first identifies the grace that's there. And so again, to be clear, the rest of this letter is the confrontation of what needs to be addressed. But there's a reason he starts here. What Paul says of the Corinthian church, I believe, is also true of our church. And if Paul can discern and identify and celebrate evidences of grace, then surely we can do it in our church too. And so I would encourage you just study. Study the church that you belong to and then be encouraged by the evidences of grace that are there. There's nothing that the Corinthian church possessed that they first did not receive. And if you and I will identify evidences of grace, we will not then be prone to think much of the person. We will be prone to think much of the God who has given much to the person. Christopher Love, he was a Puritan. Not a well known one who wrote this. God exactly takes notice of, tenderly cherishes, and graciously rewards the least beginnings and the smallest measures of grace in the hearts of his people. One more time. God exactly takes notice of, tenderly cherishes, and graciously rewards. The least beginnings and the smallest measures of grace in the hearts of his people. Paul is imitating his God here. And I think we have opportunity this year to imitate our God too. I love how Paul just says, The best thing about you, Corinthians, is what God has given you in Christ. Paul is thankful for this. In every way, he says, you have something to offer. You have been enriched. You were made rich by God. You don't lack anything as you wait for his return. This would be similar to what 2 Peter 1.3, when Peter writes and he says, but you've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness in this world. And don't miss it, nine times in nine verses, he mentions Jesus Christ by name. Paul again and again and again keeps taking this Corinthian church back to Christ. Paul's not just saying, hey, listen, be different. He doesn't begin with commands. He No, he takes them first back to the grace. And he says, look at grace. Be reminded of grace. He wants them to know in the bone of their bones what the difference is that the cross has made in their lives. He wants them to know and to be convinced that as they drive deeper and deeper into the cross of Christ and into the wisdom that the cross provides, they will know how to live rightly in this world. I pray God in mercy would just drive that deeper and deeper into our bones as a church this year. Brings us to reality three. The third thing that overwhelms Paul that I think he's trying to overwhelm the Corinthians, and I think we should be overwhelmed by, is that God will sustain you till the end because he is faithful. We see this in verses eight and nine. Eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse eight, who will also confirm you, sustain you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's be clear. It is Jesus and Jesus alone through his Holy Spirit that will sustain us till the end. He sustains us. And then wonder of wonders, we get to the end and then he deems us guiltless. The grace that was applied sustains us. The grace that was applied is effective and deems us guiltless before God. It's stunning that Paul can see this and he can say this about a church who's anything but guiltless. And you think, how in the world can Paul say this? On what basis? If he's looking at this church, they've got problems everywhere. And you realize in verse 9, he's not looking at the church He's looking at the God of the church. He's looking at the one who has brought them together. He's looking at the one who is doing his sustaining work and holding fast his people. And God says, this is what I know. I know that he will sustain his people till the end. And when you get to the end, you will be deemed blameless before him because of your faith in Christ Jesus. His confidence is in the Lord. It's not rooted in the Corinthian church performance. And at some point in this church, Covenant Life Church, you are going to have this experience. You are going to interact with someone who will have a striking resemblance to one of the members of the Corinthian church. And if you've not had that interaction with anyone, it's because you are that one. Just kidding. And the question in the moment is, what will inform your perspective? How will you respond? I hope and pray that you do respond with grace-filled correction needed for the moment. But I pray that you would also respond, that I would also respond with the ability to draw out evidences of how God is at work and to not grow overly critical but to be reminded of the effective grace that is at work in the lives of his children. This perspective for Paul, it was a cross-centered perspective. I love that the word translated confirm or sustained is the same word that is translated confirmed in verse 6. And so Paul's saying, Just as the Lord confirmed the truth of the gospel in your hearts when you heard it, So he will confirm you on the way, uh, all the way to the end, so that you will stand guiltless on that final day. And so, again, I'm just, I put myself in, in Paul's shoes. I would ask you to do the same. Imagine you're sitting across from a table of a brother or a sister who's getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're suing other church members, and they're boasting about the sexual tolerance that is happening in the church. Would you start your conversation by, I just want you to know the Lord is going to make you stand guiltless, and he's going to hold you till the end. Like I'm thinking, no, that seems counterintuitive. And, and, and the beginning of this letter shocks me. And I I don't believe Paul starts on this note. I don't think he's afraid of confrontation. Uh, He clearly is going to confront. I think Paul addresses each of their problems one by one, but he starts on this note because I believe he wants them and their response to every single part of this letter. he, He wants to overwhelm them with what God has graciously done for them through the gospel. Who they are in Christ and the beauty and the feeling that's almost too good to be true that will move into their heart as they hear this. I'm just reminded as Paul writes this letter that the greatest motivator to holy living is not a list of commands for me to do. The greatest motivator for holy living is to realize what God has done for us through Christ in the gospel. Come to life, I pray that we would begin each day realizing that we're already accepted because of God. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of Christ and what he has done, living for us, dying for us, being raised for us. And that God has called us to himself, confirming the gospel in us, just because he loves us. Imagine starting each day thinking like that. Not that you have to read the Bible so God might be pleased with you, but because he is pleased with you, you get to read the Bible to get more of him. Imagine starting a conversation with another believer who's been walking in sin, not by saying, you've got to get out. You better say, you've got to get out. But imagine just starting it by saying, the Lord has called you and sanctified you and gifted you. I see his grace at work in you, and I believe That on the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus will declare you blameless. Now let's address your ongoing sin. Like who would hear that and go, ah, I want to rebel against that. Like God's grace melts our hearts. Come to Life Church, I'm praying that 2024 would be a year that each of us take a step to know how to best receive that. And to know how to best give that. That we would be... Identifiers of his grace. And I think this message is difficult for us to receive because we're so apt to put our own chains back on. We're so apt to heap God's condemnation back on ourselves until we can do enough good or avoid enough bad for a long enough time. And I just want you to know, Paul begins by reminding these Corinthian believers that that is not the freedom of the gospel. No, the reason he wants to know, uh, for them to know this love is because he knows it will produce gospel fruit in their life. It will produce genuine love for God, genuine love for others. And so I close this morning by just urging us to understand who we are in relation to God. And when we look back, would we just know that we have been called by God like he has overcome our inability and our resistance and he has called us and we have come. And when we look forward, we we know that we are going to be kept by God, that what happened to make us his was owing to his work and what will happen to keep us his is owing to his work and that we wouldn't look in the mirror, we wouldn't look at our record and our performance to find confidence that we would look at our God who is faithful covenant life know who you are you are called by god you are kept by god and if you're here and you're like i'm not one of god's there's no hope for me i'm not among that number i want you to know that the freedom of god and the calling of sinners is intended to give you hope that means even this morning you are not too far gone god is rich he is so rich unto all who call upon his name. Romans ten thirteen. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Covenant life, let's not grow weary in calling on his name. Let's not grow weary in pointing one another to call on his name. And if you're not a Christian, for the good of your soul, call on his name. Let's pray. God, you are gracious and merciful and kind. Your word stands, and it's meant not merely to help us navigate our world. It's meant to make clear who our God is and help us understand who we are in light of who you are and what you've done. And so in this moment of silence, would you... Make clear how we ought to walk in obedience today. Oh, for your glory. Oh, for our good. Make clear to us. Speak now. Your servants are listening.